0: Okay. Good morning, everyone. Happy, happy Easter. If I can ask you guys to take your seats. If you're outside and you can hear me, can I ask you guys to come on in? We're going to get started with our message in just a moment. You can see the Easter hype is real in the room. People loving this time of year. Um, My name is Grant. If we haven't met before, I'm one of the pastors here at Restored. And this is one of the biggest weekends of the year for the church. This is the weekend where we remember the most significant moments in human history. We're remembering the death, the burial, the resurrection of Jesus together as his people. And honestly, for pastors, this is like a a tricky time of year uh, because you're wanting to communicate the message of Jesus, the significant good news in a way that is kind of fresh and original and unique but it's also something that everyone is so familiar with. You know, Whether you've grown up in the church or not, whether you've been to an Easter service or not, probably all of us have heard something of the Easter story, so we're familiar with it to a degree. So one of the things I've tried to do every year is I read some of these biographies of Jesus's life, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, going through the Easter moments again, and just asking God to show me in a fresh way how to communicate this timeless, well-known message to the community of God. And one of the things I noticed this year as I was going through Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John is just how many different characters and subplots there are to the Easter story. You know, you read about Jesus and the cross, the resurrection, the central event, the central person, but there are a lot of people that are kind of around and and encircling this, some big characters, some bit parts. For example, Mary, the mother of Jesus. Just think about this moment for her. You know, Mary, who at Christmas we celebrate as this really brave young girl who says yes to God to give birth to Jesus, is now the woman who's at the cross watching her son suffer and die. She never expected this to happen, and now she is saying goodbye to her son as he dies on the cross for the sins of the world. And there, at the same time, probably with his arm around her, is Jesus' best friend John, one of his closest disciples, comforting her caring for her at the foot of the cross as she watches her son suffer. And Jesus, in the midst of all that's going on, looks down at the two of them and says, John, this is your mother, Mary. Mom, this is your son. And as he prepares to die, he's thinking about his mom and thinking about her future and thinking about the fact that he wants to see her cared for in the midst of her sorrow and loss. What about someone on kind of the other end of the spectrum, kind of a dark figure around the the Easter narrative, Judas Iscariot? And in this moment, yeah, boo, I like that, come on. We don't like that guy. In the midst of all that's going on, we've got this guy who betrays Jesus with a kiss, who at the Garden of Gethsemane comes and kisses Jesus and betrays him for 20 pieces of silver. And then when Jesus dies, he commits suicide. He, he kills himself after the guilt and shame of what's going on. Or what about Simon of Cyrene, a really small character in the Eastern narrative? This is someone who literally gets pulled into the Jesus story unwillingly. He's just there on the side of the road watching what's going on, minding his own business. And a Roman soldier grabs this guy and pulls him into the fact that he is literally carrying the cross with Jesus. And I mean, think about this. For for those of you that are familiar with the scriptures, we are called to take up our cross and follow Christ. But Simon of Cyrene literally carried the cross that Jesus carried with him. He's the only person, along with Jesus, that carried the cross and experienced the crucifixion in that very visceral way. And if you read a little bit later in the scriptures, in Romans 16, it mentions this man named Rufus, the son of Simon, who's now a leader in the church in Rome decades later. Here in the gospel narratives, it mentions Simon, the son of Rufus. And it seems that this moment of carrying the cross and being with Jesus on Easter is a moment which transforms him and his family and his son to the fact that generations of people are shaped by that weekend and shaped by the cross. Or Pontius Pilate, the Roman leader who is involved in the decision around whether to let Jesus go or to see him crucified, and his wife having bad dreams around this time and warning him, you know, this is a special man. What's going on here? Be careful with the decision you make. Or what about after the resurrection? We've got Thomas, famously known as Doubting Thomas, who misses the first Sunday where Jesus appears to the rest of the apostles and later gets told, you know, we saw him in the flesh, he's resurrected, he's risen from the dead, it's real, and he doubts until he sees Jesus and is able to put his finger in the holes and see for himself that Jesus is alive. Like in the midst of all that's going on with Jesus and the cross and the resurrection, there are all of these characters, all of these subplots, all of these stories, all of these unique emotions and experiences that are going on around the cross, and interwoven with the Easter story. That's amazing. I don't know if there's any Ted Lasso fans in the room. Very muted excitement. The back row, we've got the Leons, are very pumped on Ted Lasso. It's an amazing show, and I'm not going to give any spoilers out today, but it's a similar situation. You know, this season, season three, we're wondering what's going to happen. They're saying it's the last season. We don't know how it's all going to end, and we've got a lot of uh, loose ends that we are waiting to see tied up for example, w- what's going on with Nate the Great, you know? Nate's hair's gone gray. He's been through a traumatic time. We don't know what's going to happen with him. Are him and Ted going to reconcile? He's still the little Lego pieces there on the field. We don't know what's going to happen with him. What about um, Roy Kent and Keely? You know, what's going to happen with their relationship? Are they going to get back together or not? What about Jamie Tartt? You know, it seems like he's, like, trending positively. He's growing as a person. He's growing as a team player. Who's he going to become? What about Sam Obasanya and this restaurant endeavor? You know, what's gonna happen there? Trent Crim, he used to be with Independent, no longer with Independent, maybe a little spoiler for some of you, with the team, writing a book about this team and what Ted's been doing, what's going on with all these characters. And then there's Rebecca, Beard and Jane, this weird enigma of a character. Rupert and that locker room boy who keeps popping up from time to time. All of these characters in this narrative and then Zava, the new superstar player who's come into the team, there's a lot going on, but really this show is called Ted Lasso. This is his story, this is about him, this is about the Ted Lasso effect, it's about how he brings all of these characters together in this team and in this narrative and the effect that he has on them. It's very similar to the Easter story. Jesus is the main story, he's the big idea, his life, his journey to the cross, what God does through him and how it impacts everyone else. His death, his burial, his resurrection, the new life he brings. He's the main story, not just of Easter or the New Testament or the Bible, but of human history. It's all about him. There's a quote that I really love by H.G. Wells. Some of you might have heard this before. But he says, I'm a historian. I'm not a believer. But I must confess as a historian that this penniless preacher from Nazareth is irrevocably the very center of history. Jesus Christ is easily the most dominant figure in all history. The main story is Jesus. He says this of himself in John 11, verse 25, which if it isn't true, is either a wild lie or a wild boast. He says, I am the resurrection and the life. The one who believes in me, even if he dies, will live. Easter is about Jesus. Human history is about Jesus. But life itself is about Jesus too. Each of our lives, as we're seeing here, are like those characters and those subplots. And Ted Lasso, all of these New Testament characters surrounding Easter, we have our life, we have our story, we have things that are going on. But actually, these are meant to be interwoven to the big story of Jesus and what he's doing in human history. Our lives are meant to be connected into his life and the new life that he offers that we can experience the purpose that God has for each of us. And I hope this morning that that happens for you as we celebrate Jesus, as we celebrate Easter, as we remember the cross and the resurrection. I hope that I'm able to help you today to connect your story, your subplot into the grand narrative of God. Although I've already mentioned a bunch of other New Testament characters this morning, I think the one who stands out to me the most is probably Peter. Peter's story around the cross is the most human, the most visceral, the most flawed, the most relatable, I think. And as we look at something of a story, I think we'll see ourselves in him. Peter was a very ordinary fisherman, probably um, working for a relatively successful small company. And when Jesus came into his life and called him to follow him, he gave everything up. He left behind the family business. He left behind his family and his life as he knew it to follow Jesus into the unknown and uncertain. And he spent three or so years following Jesus everywhere he went listening to his teaching, watching his healings, watching his miracles, getting to spend time with Jesus, I I think this would be my highlight, around the campfire, hearing Jesus talk, asking him questions, sharing stories, just able to watch Jesus's life. And he was one of Jesus's best friends, the, the inner circle, one of the three, along with James and John, that got these backstage passes into moments with Jesus that none of the other disciples got to see or witness or be a part of. He was there with Jesus, Experiencing Jesus, hearing from Jesus, enjoying Jesus, but he was far from perfect. He definitely had his stuff. He definitely wasn't a perfect man. And in one key situation, after Jesus tells the disciples that he's going to go to the cross, this is way before this happens, there's a moment where Jesus warns them and says, when this happens, when I'm crucified, when I die, you guys are all going to scatter all over the place. And Peter, in that moment, replies rather self-assuredly, and he says, Jesus, not me. (laughs) Maybe the rest of these guys, but I won't do that. In Matthew 26, verse 33 to 35, it says this. Peter responds to Jesus and says, Even if everyone falls away because of you, I will never fall away. Even if everyone falls away because of you, I will never fall away. Now, this is a bit of um, artistic license here. But I'm wondering if in that moment, as Jesus says this to Peter and the disciples, if Peter starts to point around the room at the other guys and says, even if they all fall away, I never will. You know, there's no ways I would do that. Verse 34, Jesus responds. He says, truly, I tell you, tonight before the rooster crows, you will deny me three times. Now, I don't know if you had a moment like that, how you would feel or how you would respond. If Jesus tells you something and you kind of defiantly respond to him and say, no way, Jesus, like that might be one of the other guys. I don't know about them, but I know for me that won't happen. And Jesus doubles down and he says, truly I tell you, this is gonna happen. Truly I tell you before the rooster crows, you will deny me two times. How would you respond? I think for me, I know I would believe him because it's Jesus. <laughs> You know, I'd be like I can't believe I'm going to do this, but like if you're saying it, I believe it. And secondly, I would feel really discouraged. Be like, Jesus thinks this of me. Like even if I didn't believe it was true, be like, wow, Jesus believes that I'm the kind of person who would deny him. Jesus believes that I'm the kind of person if the pressure is on, if if people are asking me that I would deny him to save myself. But not Peter. Peter's so self-confident. He goes, no ways, Jesus. I would never do that. You know, that's not who I am. And he responds and says it this way in verse 35. Even if I have to die with you, Peter told him, I will never deny you. And now he's had a bad effect on all the other disciples. And it says, and all the disciples said the same thing. Peter doubles down. Like he, he says, no ways. Jesus says, truly, Peter, I'm t- you're going to do it. Let me give you details later today you will deny me three times and he says i would rather die than do that he doubles down he says something that sounds courageous and brave he looks really good saying this in front of the other disciples like i would never be that kind of person i'm much better than that peter looks jesus in the eyes and he says to him you're wrong i'm right i know better than you now i just want to say if you're in this room and you're not a follower of jesus every single Christian in this room does the same thing regularly. You know, we look at Jesus in the eyes, probably more implicitly and subtly than Peter does. And we also say, I know better than you, and I think my way is better than yours. I think some of us, maybe even from this last week or month, are like, yeah, I I know moments where I chose my own way instead of Jesus' way. But we don't do it as directly often as Peter does. In a room of people, publicly looking Jesus in the eye, and disagreeing and saying, you're wrong, I'm right, I know better. But spoiler alert, Jesus was right. (laughs) Jesus was right, he knew better. Peter does deny him three times later that day to three different people saying, you're with that man. You're with Jesus, you're one of his disciples as the crucifixion is beginning to happen. And in the Gospel of Mark, which is actually Peter's story It's his biography of Jesus. Peter, as an older man, gives you a bit of a behind-the-scenes look at what was going on in that moment. It says this in Mark 14, verse 71 to 72. Then he started to curse and swear. Peter's being vulnerable here. He's being open. You know, no one else would know the details of what happened with this third person, but he's telling us honestly how he responded. He curses and swears and says, I don't know this man you're talking about. Like, I don't know what you think this looked like, but he's saying, I swear to God, I swear on my mother's life, whatever. He's cursing and saying, I don't know him. Don't accuse me of being associated with Jesus. And immediately a rooster crowed a second time. And Peter remembered when Jesus had spoken the word to him before the rooster crows twice, he will deny me three times. And he broke down and wept. He didn't believe he was capable of this. But when the rooster crows, he realizes it's true. I'm not the man I thought I was. Jesus could see it. He could see through me. He could see what was inside of me. But until he heard the rooster crow, until he realized what he was doing, he didn't know who he really was. It's devastating for him. He'd been so self-confident. He'd been so defiant. He'd been so sure of himself. I'm not that kind of person. But he realizes in that moment when the rooster crows that he is. He'd made all these bold statements in front of everyone. You know, maybe all of these people would do that. Maybe they would deny you, Jesus, but not me. And now he realizes that he was that guy all along. Peter is proud, and Peter is not very self-aware. But in that moment, he's seeing what's truly inside of himself. He's seeing what he's truly capable of, and he's pretty surprised. Last week, Andy mentioned a book called Invitation to a Journey by Robert Mulholland. And in that book, he talks about the Christian life and the Christian journey and how we change. And he speaks about these four levels of growth or purgation or sanctification or becoming like Jesus. And the first one is like a pretty simple one. It's like when you start to follow Jesus, we stop with the big sins. You know, the obvious sins to be really over the top, the murder, the killing, the lying, the stealing, that kind of thing. We cut those things out of our lives because we know they shouldn't be there. Then we go a little bit deeper to some of the things that in our culture would be acceptable, but which actually in following Jesus and living the way of Jesus would not be. And then there's a deeper level than that. These are the unconscious sins that we're unaware of. Things that we do or don't do that we should do. Things that we do or don't do. The, these sins of omission or commission where, where we are sinning against God, but we don't see it. They're complete blind spots to us. But there's an even deeper level than that, which is what's going on with Peter in this moment. I'm going to read you guys a quote from Mulholland that says, The final stage in the purgation process, in this growth process, deals with deep-seated attitudes and inner orientations of our being, out of which our behavior patterns flow. Here God is dealing primarily with our trust structures, especially those deep inner postures of our being that do not rely on God, but on self for our well-being. Here we make the devastating discovery of all the ways in which we are captive to our own anxieties, driven by a need to control God and others, and impose our own order on things. We begin to get a glimpse of the false self that functions primarily to keep us safe, rather than helping us to know how to abandon ourselves to God. At this level, we must take a hard look at whether or not we really are trusting ourselves to God and to the flow of God's Spirit or whether we are completely bound up by defensive self-protective patterns that only serve to help us maintain our sense of of security and well-being in the world. For Peter, this rooster crowing moment is a moment where he realizes something about himself that he hasn't before. He sees something in himself that Jesus knew about, that Jesus was aware of, but which he wasn't. That at this lowest level, in these trust structures, that actually, he is living for himself, relying on himself, trusting himself rather than God. And it catches him off guard. Now, I want you to think about something else to do with Peter. Peter is a professional Christian. This is his job. This is where he gets his salary from. He's, he's a pastor like me. Peter, Peter was the kind of guy who would preach Easter sermons. You know, He would get up on stage. He would talk about Je- Jesus to a crowd of people like this. So for him to deny Jesus, especially on Easter, is kind of a big deal. You know, this is the first Easter Sunday, the first Easter ever, and Peter is denying Jesus. Now, you might not realise that, but if I did that today, I would probably lose my job. <laughs> you know. If I stood up here today and I was like, Jesus isn't the way, he's not the truth, don't worry about him, we can do whatever we I would probably lose my job next week because I'm preaching heresy, you know. If I got up here and I was like, Ah, don't worry about Jesus, he's not, you know. If I denied him in the way Peter did, it would be a big deal for me. This could ruin me professionally. Peter on the first Easter, you know, if you're going to deny him on any Easter, you want to avoid the first Easter. On the first ever Easter, Peter denies Jesus publicly. This is the kind of thing that's going to get out, you know. You think of him as a spiritual leader in the early Jesus community. People are going to start to hear, you know, Peter on the first, he denied Jesus. Did you hear? Three times. He even swore. He cursed. He called, you know. He was really, really strong in his denial of Jesus. Peter denied Jesus on the first Easter. He's ruined professionally. But more than that, he's personally ruined. More than just his job, Peter in this moment is shocked to see what is inside of his own heart and life. Peter's realizing that all of his boasting was false. It was a waste of time. He's seeing his false self. He's seeing that actually he's a fraud. All of the things he said to Jesus and to the other disciples are not true of himself. That actually he's a different man to who he thought he was. In those moments, he handles himself differently to how he thought. He's not superior. He's not stronger. He's not better. Perhaps he's even weaker. And for Peter, in these three denials, he's confronted by his humanity, his frailty, and his sin. And I want to ask you in this room, you know, can you relate to Peter in his failure? Can you relate to Peter in his flaws? Can you relate to Peter in his boasting? Can you relate to Peter who felt so humbled and devastated in this moment? Have you had a rooster-crowing moment? Have you had a moment where you realized that you were different to the way you thought you were? Where you've been exposed where you've been shown for who you are. Maybe it's a failed relationship. Maybe it's a business venture that didn't go the way you thought it was or would. Maybe it was a really bad decision that you've made. Maybe it was a public humiliation or embarrassment, or maybe it's just private. No one in this room knows it, no one. The closest people to you don't know this, but between you and God, there's been a rooster crowing moment where you've seen inside of yourself in a different way like Peter did. Maybe it's eating you up inside today. I don't know if anyone watched the Oscars this year. Okay, it was just me. It was a really good one. Actually, Jimmy Kimmel hosted it well, I enjoyed. At the end of the Oscars, Jimmy Kimmel walked off stage and he went to a board that said, years since last issue. And he changed it from zero to one. Because you might have noticed the year before at the Oscars, something happened that was kind of in the news for a while. You all know what I'm talking about. There was the slap, you know? This massive moment where Will Smith walked on stage And he slapped Chris Rock in the face and walked back to his seat and swore from his seat. And it was shocking because I don't think anyone knew what was going on. You know, people were like, is this real? Is this staged? Is this a joke? Is he really angry? No one knew what was going on in that moment. And I'm pretty sure Will Smith was pretty shocked by what happened in that moment, too. You know, I doubt he thought when he was getting ready for the Oscars that night that he would get on stage (laughs) and assault the host. There was this quote by Dave Chappelle, another comedian after this happened, where he said, commenting on Will Smith in the moment, he said, Smith did an impression of a perfect man for 30 years. Chappelle goes on and he says, um, when the slap happened, Smith ripped his mask off and showed us he was as ugly as the rest of us, adding, whatever the consequences are, I hope he doesn't put his mask back on again and lets his real face breathe. Whatever you think about that quote, whatever you think about that moment, whatever you think's going on, I, honestly, I don't like that quote completely because every single one of us is made in the image of God and have value and dignity. And we live in a fallen and broken world and all of us struggle with sin and do things that we know we shouldn't do. But I think the heart of that quote is so true. The heart, I, I don't like the word ugly there, but I think the heart of that is so true. In that moment when the slap happened, the rooster crowed. It was a shocking moment for Will Smith, not knowing what was going on in his heart and in his life. But I guarantee you, guarantee you, this is the point I want to make, that if Jesus appeared to Will Smith that afternoon and said, Will, I want to let you know, tonight you are going to win the Best Actor Oscar. He'd be like, I'm sure he'd be like, geez, I hope so. That would be so cool if I did, you know. I'm pretty sure he had some expectation this could happen. This could be my year. And then Jesus carries on, but I want you to know, 45 minutes before you win that Oscar, you're going to get on stage another time, and you're going to walk up to and assault the presenter on stage. I think Will Smith would have said, never, Jesus. There is no way I could do that tonight. No matter what happens, I'm not going to get on stage and assault anyone. (laughs) He wouldn't believe it, just like Peter. He wouldn't believe he was capable of that. He wouldn't believe under any circumstances that that could happen. In his moment, probably, of greatest personal achievement, greatest professional achievement, that evening is marked by him getting on stage and slapping Chris Rock. And I think for Peter, it was a similar moment. Jesus tells him, tonight, you are gonna do, you're going to deny me three times. Never, Jesus. There is no way under any circumstances I could do that. I would die before I denied you. And for you and I, just like Peter, just like Will Smith, there are moments where the rooster crows. There are moments where we are shocked by what we're capable of there are moments where things come out of us that we can't believe are inside of us we we've all got our stuff and in his three denials of jesus peter is confronted by his humanity his frailty and his sin now i want you to think about the moment where peter meets with jesus again after the crucifixion he knows he's denied jesus he, he knows that jesus knew he was going to deny him and that jesus was right Now, Jesus has been raised from the dead, and Peter, who thought, maybe I'm going to get away with this, (laughs) knows he's got to see Jesus again. And they meet up for this beach barbecue, fish barbecue, and there's this incredible elephant in the room, this awkwardness of Peter and Jesus having this face-off and having this conversation, Peter knowing he was wrong, and not only that he was wrong, but that he denied and betrayed Jesus. And in John 21, verse 15 to 18, we get a bit of a snapshot into what happens says, when they had eaten breakfast, Jesus asked Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? And I like to think, again, this is artistic license, that maybe Jesus pointed at the other disciples, just like Peter had done, when in Matthew 26:33 he said, even if everyone falls away because of you, I will never fall away. Peter had claimed that he loved Jesus more, that he was stronger, that he was better, that he was more resilient, that he was more courageous, that he was more gritty, that he was whatever adjective you want to use, fill it in there. Peter had claimed this, but now he knows that's not true. He's not who he thought he was or who he said he was. And now Jesus asked me, do you love me more than these? And Peter doesn't brag now. He doesn't say much. He just says, you know that I love you. He's a humbled man, he's walking with a limp, he's been exposed, he feels vulnerable. You know that I love you. No more bravado, no more pride, no more comparison, no more exaggeration, you know that I love you. Verse 16, A second time Jesus asked him, Simon son of John, do you love me? Yes, Lord, he said to him, you know that I love you. Shepherd my sheep, he told him. Verse 17, he asked him the third time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Peter was grieved that he asked him the third time. Do you love me? He said, Lord, you know everything. You know that I love you. Feed my sheep, Jesus said. And Peter had denied Jesus three times on the night of the crucifixion. So here, in the moment of them getting back together on the beach, Jesus asked this question three times, not to dig the knife in deeper, but to redeem Peter and to redeem his betrayals and his denials. Three times he asks them to three times reinstate him so that he will continue the work that God has called him to do. I want you to picture the scene almost like Jesus taking out the surgeon's scalpel. This is delicate surgery that's about to happen on the beach. Peter has just seen these subterranean levels of his heart exposed, levels of pride, levels of arrogance, levels of self-reliance, and Jesus is going deep into those places of his heart and soul and life to bring his love and truth and redemption to restore Peter. That beach was a messy beach. (laughs) This was a bloody, messy, gutsy moment as Peter experiences surgery before the great physician, the, the, the great healer there on that beach. But Jesus isn't just opening Peter up to expose him or he's not humiliating him. He's not embarrassing or shaming him at all. In fact, he's doing this to deal with his shame and his guilt and his embarrassment and his humiliation. He's opening Peter up so that he can heal him at the deepest possible places to save him, to redeem him, to change him, to give him new life. Jesus is the great physician and he's giving Peter what he needs in this moment. And in this moment, as we see Peter's subplot connected with the story of Easter, we're seeing both the resurrection of Jesus and the death and resurrection of Peter take place. Does that make sense? You see, as the rooster crowed that third time, as Peter denied Jesus that third time, it was like the old Peter died. As the rooster crowed, Peter realized that he was someone he didn't realize he was, and he would never be the same from that moment on. It's like Peter died. The old Peter, brash and proud and arrogant and kind of self-assured in those ways, is gone. And now on the beach, what Jesus is doing is redeeming him and giving him new life. It's, it's like he's being born again. It's like Peter is being resurrected to a new life, a whole new Peter. And in this passage, do you notice that Jesus never mentions Peter's sin? Kind of shocking, you know? I don't think that's the way I would have handled the situation with Peter on the beach if I was Jesus. Jesus never tells Peter to stop doing the things he did, to stop being proud or arrogant, to stop lying, denying him, to stop being a coward. He never says any of those things. Jesus also never brings up the past. He never says, hey, Peter, remember that time I, I said you deny me three times? Told you so. He never does that. You know, he could have. He had every right to do it, but he never does that. Why do you think Jesus doesn't do that? Why do you think he doesn't go there? Well, because repentance looks like going below the surface, below the things that Peter did outwardly to those subterranean levels of his heart where change needed to come and salvation needed to come and grace needed to come and truth needed to come and he needed to begin to rely on God in those deeper levels. Jesus doesn't bring up the sins, he says, Do you love me more than these? And Peter says, yes, I love you. You know that I love you. No more than these, the other people are out of the story. It's just him and Jesus. You know that I love you. You know everything. You know that I love you. And this, Peter's saying, Lord, you know I was proud. You you know me better than I know myself. You know what was inside me. You knew what I was going to do. But you also know that I love you. He's also saying, I love you, not more than these, but I love you saying my love isn't more impressive, my love isn't better, my love isn't greater, but I do love you. He's a humbled man, honestly speaking, with Jesus. And he's saying, I also need your grace. And I like to think he's pointing again at the other disciples, a redemptive moment with them too. I also need your grace, like each one of them. I need you. Peter takes his eyes off of himself and off of his strength, and he puts them on Jesus. And on that beach, he has changed. He's filled with new hope, new life, new love. He's healed of some of the pain of what's happened in the last few days. He's not the same Peter anymore. He's a whole new Peter. Born again, transformed, changed, restored by Jesus after his greatest failure. He's a new man. I know um, for the Christopher Nolan fans in the room, you're excited for July, okay. Jorge, again, just a big fan of any movie quote, any comment that comes out. (laughs) But we've got Oppenheimer coming out in July. Looks like it's gonna be Christopher Nolan's longest film. But a while ago, Shell pointed out a thing from his 2017 film, Dunkirk. Right at the end of the film, there's a scene where 400,000 soldiers have been brought home. It's a moment of incredible emotion for them and Harry Styles from One Direction fame, looking really good, but acting pretty well in the film if you ask me. (laughs) He's in the train coming home, heading towards the train station, and they're just somber, and they're down, and they're tired. All the soldiers are are filled with shame. They they feel like they failed. They they didn't win the battle. They didn't save their homeland. They didn't save their people. In fact, they needed to be rescued. (laughs) They needed civilians to come across the scene to come and fetch them and bring them home. The, The people that they were meant to save have saved them. And as this train is coming into the station, it stops a little bit before it gets there. And Harry Styles, he looks out the window. There's a few kids. He says, what station is this? They say, it's Woking. He says, give me one of those newspapers. And they hand him a newspaper. And he sees just the headline is about what has happened at Dunkirk, about the evacuation that was needed. And he says to his friend, I can't bear it. They'll be spitting at us on the streets. Just a fear of what they're going to experience when they get back to the station. You know, what they're going to do. The the people that they were meant to save, how they're going to treat them. And his friend is reading the the headlines from this, this newspaper. He's reading about Churchill's speech that has just been made. And they are just expecting to be rejected as they get home. And there's this moment where someone starts to knock on the windows. And Harry Styles turns away. He says, I can't look. And he goes almost into the fetal position, just trying to protect himself. And there's knocking, and then there's some strange sounds, and there's some cheering. And it doesn't sound like angry noise. It sounds like happy noise. And he turns and looks, and a man hands him two beers through the window. And people are coming with food, and they're cheering. And the children are clapping, and they're waving, and they're celebrating that their boys have come home. And his face instantly changes from shame and embarrassment and humiliation and guilt to one of joy. They've come home. They've been received. They've been accepted at home. They aren't rejected. The people are celebrating that they've come home. And this is what we read in the Gospels. Luke 15, verse 7, this picture of what heaven is like, the way heaven responds to failures and mess-ups and people in need of grace says, I tell you, in the same way, there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous people who don't need repentance. All of heaven celebrates as we respond to his grace and come home. That beach where Peter ate that barbecued fish with Jesus, where they had that really big conversation, that was his Dunkirk train station coming home moment. It was almost like the angels were handing those beers to him the the food to him cheering and celebrating saying yes he's come home he's come back home after where he's been and i want to say to you again this morning i want you to notice that peter was a pastor peter was a religious leader he was one of jesus's closest people he he was someone that others looked up to as an example of the spiritual life so i want to say this morning is a message come to jesus it's an invitation to those of you who this morning have never responded to Jesus before. It's an opportunity to say, I want to come home. I want that grace. I need that grace. I want to follow Jesus. I want to know Jesus. But it's more than that. Because Peter is someone who'd been with Jesus for three years. He'd been someone who'd been preaching about Jesus to others. He was someone who everyone else would look up to as an example of the Jesus life and community and, and someone who, who embodied the gospel. But he had a moment where he needed to come back to Jesus where he needed to experience this grace, where he needed to come back home, where he needed this message to go deeper in his heart and in his life, where he needed to grow in relying on God, not just in part, but in whole. And on the cross, what we see is God takes what looks like a massive failure. Jesus dies, he's defeated. And God takes that, that weakest moment of Jesus's life and ministry, where he is beaten and broken, and turns it into the greatest victory, the greatest victory in the history of the world. And for those of us who've trusted in Jesus, not only are our sins forgiven, not only are we washed clean of all of those things, but we are given a new life. We are welcomed home. We have a relationship with God, all in Him. And this morning as we celebrate Easter, the reality is each one of us are Peter. Each one of us have failed. Each one of us have said, Jesus, I know better than you. I know the right way. I know what I'm going to do. Each one of us need his grace. And whether you've never responded to Jesus before, whether you've been following him for a long time, there's an opportunity for each of us to say, would you go deeper in my heart? Would you give me more of your grace? Would you change me from the inside out? Would you help me to walk with you and know you and live for you? And really, ultimately, this morning is an opportunity for us to connect our story, our subplot, our unique individual experiences with the ultimate story of Jesus that we see at Easter. So if I can ask you guys to stand with me. If I can ask the band to come up. I hope something from what I've shared today has stood out to you. But I wanna say, I, I do think there's two groups of people today. There's some of us who, who today we've got an opportunity to come to Jesus, to begin a journey with Him, to begin to follow Him. And I wanted to start by praying for you. So if you are happy closing your eyes where you are, if that's you today, I'd love to invite you to respond to Jesus. Imagine almost like Peter having that one-on-one with him, that now you would come with your sin with your need, with your failures, with with your rooster-crowing moment and ask Jesus to forgive you and give you his grace and say, I don't necessarily know all of what this means, but I want to follow you. If that's you, I'd encourage you just to pray that where you are. To ask Jesus to take you by the hand and to lead you forward. And I want to ask you to share that with someone today. If you've made that prayer, if you've made that decision, if you've taken that step to share that with someone, I responded to Jesus this morning. And then for those of us who've been walking with Jesus for a month or a year or a decade or, or three or four or five decades, Maybe this morning you just know, like Peter, there's deeper levels in your heart that you need to respond to God and where where you're not trusting in Him, where you're trusting in yourself, where you're trusting in other things. Maybe there's moments of failure you need to bring to Him, just areas where you know that you need His grace. Or maybe it's just areas where you need to have a heart-to-heart with Jesus. You need to sit on the beach, there's a big elephant in the room, you need to talk that through. I want to ask you to respond in your own way where you're at. And Holy Spirit, I just ask now that for each one of us, you would personalize the message of the cross and of the resurrection for us. Whatever this looks like for us today, I pray that we would know what it looks like for us to respond to you today. And to connect our subplot, our small story, into the biggest story of you and what you're doing. Would you come, Holy Spirit, and guide us? Amen.
1: Um, You guys can grab a seat. Um you should have a communion cup that was on your chair underneath it. Um and if you if it's not on yours it might be underneath it. There's a chair next to you that's open. Um but we're gonna take communion together here in a second. But as Graham was preaching, I just think Peter's story really is like our story, if we're honest. Remember I was on a, a couple of years back I went on a trip to Israel and um we went to East Jerusalem and in East Jerusalem there's a church there. And the church is kind of a unique church. It's It doesn't have a cross on the building. It has a rooster on the building at the point of the cathedral. And the reason it has a rooster is um, a lot of a lot of people think that that's where the home of Caiaphas, the high priest, was. Where Peter denies Jesus the third time. Ended up building a, it's a Catholic church today. But again, that moment of denial, denial, denial. And the thing about Peter that's kind of wild is after Jesus restores them on the beach, a little while later, 40 days later, whatever Pentecost happens. The Holy spirit descends on the church. He preaches thousands of people come to know Jesus. Miracles are happening. Signs and wonders are happening. Radical generosity. Just this beautiful utopian community starts to form full of supernatural power and love and God's presence. And then we read in the book of Galatians that a few years later, Peter is denying Jesus again. Post-resurrection, post-Pentecost, walking in power, and it's like he's there again. He wants to look cool, essentially. He wants people to like him. He wants people. He's fearing man. He's too worried what people think, what they can do to him. And Paul has to call him out. And he goes, dude, you're not walking in steps. But Galatians, it's wild to me. Again, again he's been an apostle this whole time. You guys can imagine if I, like, denied, you guys heard I was denying Jesus for a weekend. Like, I can't, like, tell people, ah, it's not really, I don't know, man, I don't know about Jesus. And he does it again, he's restored again, and here's the reality is that we are messy and we are on a journey. And so as we go to communion, I want you to remember this reality that wherever you're at, whatever you're wrestling with, I would encourage you to come back to Jesus or to come to Jesus for the first time. For some of you guys, you might realize, man, I, I, have to, I, need, to, I need to actually prioritize my relationship to Jesus. Need to actually figure out what I believe about him, and if I'm going to follow him or not. Maybe for some of you guys, it's, it is coming back to church. It's it's diving into something. Whatever it is for you, Jesus is ready and waiting and willing, and His grace keeps go. He lavishes us with grace. The New Testament says. Um, over the last year, I've been playing. Re, I've been starting to replay Mario Kart with my kids. Fortunately, it's not Super Nintendo the way it's meant to be played. It's switch, which I, I struggle with it's the graphics are better, but it's it's, it's weird. but uh I mentioned a few years ago, but but I just can't get over this reality that um when you play Mario Kart, um if you're on like Rainbow Road or any of the space ones, like if you go off the edge, there's like this you know fisherman there's like a fisherman in a cloud, I't know how to describe it, some sort of angel. <laughs> and you go off, and he just grabs you, he sweeps you up, and he puts you back on the journey back on back into the race. And I think for some of us today, um, you're like, man, I can't believe I went off again. Like Peter, I went off again. You have moments you're like, this is classic me. Classic this struggle. And what you need to know is that at the end of Peter's life, he, he actually ended up mar- being martyred for his faith. He was crucified upside down and he chose to be. So you need to know at some point he stopped caring what people thought. He stopped denying Jesus and became the man he was called to be. And so there's a hope that you will be changed one day. But know that the resurrection says that you will be changed one day, but the reality of grace is that you're gonna, it's going to take time. And so wherever you're out in your journey today with Jesus, he welcomes you and he welcomes you to the table. And so right now, if you guys have your communion, if you're here and you're, you consider yourself a follower of Jesus, you believe he died on the cross, he rose again for you, and you're seeking to follow him now, as imperfect as it might be, but you're trying to follow him, we'd invite you to take communion, whether or not you're a member of our church. Again, you're going to take this um, very nutritious wafer, I want you to pull that out. We're going to drink this uh, very nutritious juice. But as we do it, we're remembering that Jesus always brings us back. Jesus, thank you for rising again. Thank you for welcoming us back. Thank you that wherever we're at, some of us have even given up on ourselves. You haven't given up on us. First John says, even if our hearts can convict us or condemn us, even if our hearts condemn us, God loves us and his love is greater than our hearts. More important than how we feel about ourselves is how you feel about us. And if we are in Christ, we have unlimited grace at our disposal to come home and to change. And so for the men and women who are here, who are wondering, man, can I, can I, can I still walk with Jesus? Can I, is it still, if I've gone too far, am I kidding myself being here today? Would you remind them you have it? I was patient with Peter. I'm patient with you. The resurrection says one day you'll see me and be like me. And in the meantime, there's grace for your journey. So, and so spirit, I ask that you would um, encourage men and women towards you in a fresh way, as we take communion, that they'd really believe you can get us back on track. Thank you for your grace that we see in both the cross and resurrection, the body broken, the blood shed, and then the body restored and raised. The hope we celebrate today. It's his name we pray. Amen.